This is the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Tom Church, and I'm joined by the Libertarian Professor Richard Epstein. Here at Hoover, Richard is the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow. He's also the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and he's a senior lecturer at the University of Chicago. Uh, Richard, we're just over a month out from the attacks on Israel from Hamas, uh, with Israel uh, going into Gaza, cutting off Gaza City, uh, conducting not just airstrikes, but uh, uh, ground operations. Uh, they are, uh, I think the recent news today uh, is that we've got humanitarian pauses in the fighting and the operations in order to try and get more civilians out of the northern part mm-hmm. of Gaza. Um but no one expects this to be done quite soon. And I believe today as well, President Biden was asked about the the likelihood of a ceasefire. And his answer was none, not going to happen. Um, and I think, you know, we've talked on this program uh, why that why that seems to make sense, because Israel isn't going to stop until Hamas is rooted out, done and no longer mm-hmm. able to conduct any operations. Um, so there's a lot to talk about here. Um, obviously, we this it's a terrible situation. However, you know this is the libertarian. This is I've got a, a law professor here. I kind of want to step back for a moment because again, I'm reading commentary. I can't look away from this, and there are still just constant uh, com- what do I say complaints or or allegations against Israel um, for conducting either war crimes or the 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 way that it's prosecuting this war mainly because the number of people that Israel has killed is significantly more than what Hamas was able to or is still continually able to do. So I, I guess I want to start Richard by talking about how Israel is prosecuting this war and what it actually means for a country or a I guess in Hamas's case mm-hmm. uh, a terrorist organization within a within a within a, uh, a territory to actually conduct war crime what makes something a war crime what makes something a crime against humanity and I suppose why, why aren't we hearing more about uh, allegations of Hamas doing the same thing well I mean that's one of the most troublesome things I mean there was a recent announcement by one of the major leaders of Hamas who said, we conducted this mass assault on Israel um, on October 7th because we wanted the world to pay attention to the fact that the uh, Palestinian problem had been put into the rearview mirror. And the reason why that was the case, the Abraham Accords and most of the other initiatives were designed to control Iran, designed to solidify the Israeli-Saudi Arabian alliance, designed to normalize relationships with other Arab countries. And so the great achievement of the Trump administration was to say that the settlement of the Palestinian dispute was not a precondition for the settlement of any other kind of dispute. And that, of course, radically changed the balance. So that's the first point that we know. The second point is they succeeded beyond their wildest expectations. Uh, Israeli defense and security, which has normally been a hallmark of their success, completely broke down. After the war, there will be a massive investigation as to who was responsible and why. My prediction is that for a whole variety of reasons, Mr. Netanyahu will decide he can no longer remain in office and he will be known as the war prime minister. He either saved or didn't quite save um, Israel during this situation. And so what happens is those things should have been absolutely condemned right out of the box. Uh, But what happened was there was the most amazing response throughout large part of the world including uh, the situation in Gaza, where people just cheered this particular outcome as though it had been a heroic blow for freedom. And and I have to say, it got me absolutely flummoxed to see how many uh, sensibly intelligent people 
could forgive the beheading of innocent children, putting people in oven, tying families up together and murdering them all on the grounds that this was going to favor some sort of liberation. So what's happened is the way Hamas has played it, and it seems to have worked all too well, is whatever they did at the beginning is to be forgotten. And if you forgot that, then what happens is you just simply have this random naked aggressive war by Israel against these other people who have done quote unquote nothing wrong. And now when you're doing all these things according to a traditional international law, pretty solid precedent is unexcused attack on civilians is of course uh, the ultimate wrong. Hamas says everybody in Israel is occupying our territory, so none of them are civilians, which is just bizarre. It's a change in language. And at that point, when you start having retaliation, uh, there is very clearly two rules that are at place. One is if you're trying to use people as human shields or to build hospitals above command centers and so forth, all the deaths that result from those things are charged to Hamas, they're not charged to Israel. That doesn't seem to be the case in this situation. And then, in effect, with respect to collateral damages, this endless discussion of how do you figure out what proportionality is, how many people are you allowed to kill who are innocent civilians, or at least civilians, and how many people do you have to take out? Now, this was never a calculation during traditional wars. Uh, if you go back to the Second World War and take places like Dresden and so forth, you just flatten the place and you manage to kill as many as 80,000 people in one day, a very large fraction of which were, in fact, uh, civilians. And nobody blinked an eye about this. And the same thing was true in a strange way about uh, the situation in Hiroshima. There was a lot of heart ringing, but Truman never backed down. And the whole question was whether this was a smart or not smart move. It wasn't whether it's a war crime. Well, Israel is now facing this kind of pressure. And the reason it is, is there's a huge amount of latent anti-Semitism, which has bubbled up around the war. It has been disgraceful on many American campuses. And so what happens is the proportionality thing is being pushed very hard. And it's being pushed by Joe Biden, who understands that he has many complications at home and some real concern about the human situation. Uh, the correct way to have done this was what, in fact, Netanyahu suggested. You've got no legitimate case for keeping the hostages. You let them all out, many of whom are not Israeli, many of whom are not even dual citizens. Um, and then we could start talking about some kind of an accommodation uh, with letting the civilians out. That didn't seem to pan. And as best I could tell today, the new proposal is we're going to have a four-hour reprieve in which people could start to move south. This is unambiguously good for Israel to get these people out of the way. There were some very nice and touching photographs of Israeli military personnel uh, using a white flag and ferry, ferrying some uh, Palestinian children and women to the south um, so as to try to hasten this. And the more people you get out, the better. What is not at all clear is exactly how this relates to all of the military action. And so it could be you stop the aerial bombardment, but at the same time, you continue the work in the tunnels, which is far away from civilians. I don't know if that's happening or not. Uh, it's short enough that they can kind of regroup in a major fashion. And, you know, my view about this is looking at it from the point of view of Israelis, where my sympathies lie. Is these are very hard calls that they have to make. There's nothing about this call which strikes me as rash or stupid in the way in which it's done. And so what you do is you back the government that makes them, knowing that they're subject to really very heavy policies. But the thing that Vietnam has made clear, and he should have made this clear much sooner in some sense, that is years ago, is that the destruction of Hamas is the only solution uh, to this problem. He's going to have to deal with massive increases in unhappiness in the West Bank. Uh, 
Uh, that's certainly taking place. And he's going to have to deal with the protective threats of Hezbollah. Uh, the United States, I think, has done a very effective job, for which we all ought to be grateful, in having enough firepower stationed off the coast of the Mediterranean so that Hezbollah and Iran are not going to move. The West Bank may be a powder keg, but there's not going to be a military powder keg. It's going to be a police action. And so then what you do is you continue to grind down. And so let's just hope that this thing kind of ends on a happy note, if you could use that kind of word. Uh, but Hamas must go. If you let this thing stay, it will simply fester again. There was a suggestion, I gather from the president, let the Palestinian Authority have some control in dealing with Gaza. It won't work. Uh, they're completely corrupt. Abbas is totally depraved. He's 87 years old. And the moment you do that, you'll get the same kind of forces taking place uh, that took place in 2006 when Fatah lost the election, Hamas came in, and then the next year starting throwing its opponents off of Ruse in order to solidify power. This is an organization that doesn't have a parliament. Its major leaders are worth billions of dollars in the Libyan Qatar. I mean, this is all quite crazy. So let's just hope that uh, Biden is consistent with the long-term end. It may take a day or two longer. That may be good or bad. If you could save more Palestinian citizens and provide some assistance to them, that's fine. It's an open question of what Hamas will do. If it tries to obstruct this in any way, shape, or form, uh, then some of the guilt is going to start to shift. Indeed, I believe that the announcement that they made that they did this in order to provoke world attention is a sign of incredible brutality and will hope to sit at least some of world opinion against Hamas, which enjoys, in my view, all too much support. I'm with you on that. You know, Richard, this is uh, this is a very online war. It's an interesting mm -hmm. experience to have so much of it reported, um, not just reported on, but but posted from each side on social media. Uh, yeah. The IDF is constantly posting updates of its operations in Gaza, um, the tunnel systems that they found, images, videos of weapons, um, of launch sites. Uh, and unsurprisingly, in uh, underneath hospitals, under in schools uh, and mosques. Mm -hmm. And so this is, you know, my earlier question. I'm, I'm I want to get at the IDF is clearly uh, going through these operations, has enormous amounts of munitions, and and can do quite a lot of damage. And so it is destroying and fighting and 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 sending bombs uh, and missiles to schools, mosques, hospitals, other places uh, in order to get at the tunnel systems, in order to get at um, mm -hmm. where they're actually firing. And I think many people see that and just think that has to be, when I say illegal, I mean, there's no real right, global law or anything, but there is kind of this expectation of what a war crime is, what a crime against humanity is, what, um, you know, even genocide, which is what another claim that that's happening Um we haven't even talked about uh, uh, the censure uh, in, in in Congress. So, what is the IDF actually allowed to do in response to Hamas firing from schools, mosques? Well, I think the the answer is unambiguous. If you embed yourself in a civilian population, you make them a uh, a target that's legitimate for the other side, and you have committed a war crime. That's the way it has always been understood. And you start to think about it: how many times has Israel done anything that remotely looks like that? And the answer is they've never done anything. But Hamas essentially plays by its own rules. And, and so what happens is the long-term grievances and resentments overcome the short-term kinds of issues. And on the American campuses where this thing is constantly done, um, it is amazing to me, you know, you go around now and lots of students are wearing kafias or however you pronounce it, to sort of show their solidarity on this thing. 
university presidents are utterly unwilling to do anything. And it turns out that the conference that you have are not speech, but the uh, implicit physical threats, jostling, pushing. Uh, if you read the column in the Wall Street Journal by two Yale, or Yale college students yesterday, you realize that there's an undercurrent of fear that virtually every Jewish student feels on every campus. And, you know, I sit there and I cannot understand why it is that people cannot affirm the view that murdering children is bad, even if they want to bracket the question of do we or do we not believe in a, quote, two-state solution. There will now be no two-state solution because if you're talking about states as opposed to enclaves or territories of one kind or another, states are entitled to maintain military operations. And it's simply not viable to have a situation where Gaius and the West Bank become some kind of a Palestinian nature and then invite in several hundred thousand Iranians to camp there until it's ideal for them to attack. Israel knows, and everybody should know this, if they lose once, it's curtains. They have to win every time. And the only way that this makes sense is every time you see massive aggression on the other side, it has to result in some tangible loss for them. It can't be that they play a game where if they succeed, they win everything, and if they lose, nothing happens to them. And the Israelis understand that. And so the strategy that you have to adopt in all these cases when you deal with them is assume that they're going to act in bad faith, i.e. breach any promise at any time if it's in their interest. And you have to conclude yourself that even if they breach the deal that you make, it's better off that you made the deal and have it breached than have made no deal at all. And I think that's what's behind the four-hour situation. The Israelis see an unambiguous upside from this, and they don't see any terrifying downside uh, to what's going on here. But again, a lot of this depends upon exactly what's happening off the center stage when you're talking about the four-hour periods. Uh, how many days you do it, how long it's going to last, I don't think I know. But I do think, in effect, that the Israelis... Uh, have enough backing from their own civilian population, and there is enough realism on the part of the rest of the world, including many Arab nations. If you want to destabilize things, uh, make sure that Hamas lives, and then the rest of the Middle East is going to become much closer to a powder keg than it would otherwise do. Uh, so uh, there's, I think, a lot of public support, uh, but there's a lot of government support in quiet, which essentially goes the other way. Uh, diplomacy under these circumstances has an open and a closed aspect and trying as an outsider to figure out what's going on, nobody knows. So, for example, we know that the Israelis and the Saudis have been talking. What we don't know is whether or not there's already some kind of an informal alliance, which says that if Iran wants to move in force to the Middle East, uh, Israeli and Saudi fighter pilots and bombers will cooperate in an attack either on Hezbollah or even in, perhaps even on Iran itself. We don't know that. My guess is there is such an agreement. It's fragmentary, it's indefinable, it's obviously not enforceable and so forth. These are marriages of convenience, and marriages of convenience could last an hour or they could last a lifetime, depending what the circumstances are. So that's why it's so difficult for all of us from the outside to do things. We know things that have to be going on behind the scenes. We have some rational sense of what people want to do, but frankly, we don't know actually whether they've done it or not. Look, the Israelis made a terrible mistake some years ago when they basically traded a thousand members of Hamas for one Israeli soldier. And one of the guys they gave back is now the leader of their military operations. I mean, they can't do that. They have to understand uh, that if hostages are taken, they simply have to treat it as a sunk cost. Because if you want to save one hostage, in the end, what you're going to cost yourself is 1,400 other lives. And it's extremely difficult not to take care of the individual who's in the crosshairs. But in the end, I hope they've learned the lesson 
uh, that you have to be extremely tough with respect to those issues. Keep pushing. And then once you wipe everybody out from the Hamas situation, try to establish, and only Israel can do this, a situation in which there's an internal enclave which is run by some Palestinians who have no military authority, some police authority, and that the external borders and the relationships with other nations are going to be uh, controlled by the Israelis. I don't like this situation, but I see no alternative to it. The UN is utterly worthless when it comes to these kinds of things, and no other nation will have uh, the ability and the tenacity to make sure that it operates correctly. I think last one here for you, Richard. Um, some of the news coming out today, uh, Reuters, CNN, Associated Press, New York Times taking a, a lot of flack because some of the on-ground reporting as the attack was happening was from freelancers who who work with those organizations. There was a, a photographer for, well, I say, say when I say for CNN, I mean clearly a photographer that CNN has used, um, who had also filmed himself uh, riding in with a grenade in hand. Um, New York Times issued a a stern, you know, we didn't know about this. This person who has wasn't working for us at the time, but has worked just for us in the pack and has, has passed and has done good work. You know, it's not like we knew that this was going to happen. And we're sitting on it, um, which is what, of course, some allegations were. Uh, but it does seem like press coverage within Gaza again hasn't ever really been allowed by Hamas, obviously. Um, but it seems to be, I guess no surprise why coverage has tended to go certain ways, right? The hospital situation that happened where it was yeah. blamed on Israel and, you know, immediately, well, I think many people now are waking up to being suspect to any information that's coming out of there. Um, I guess I'm trying to ask you, how do we, how do we really wrap our heads around not what's true and what's going on in Gaza, but how do we know again, how many people are truly being killed who are, militants versus civilians how are we able to actually gauge if israel's reaction if it's if its operations are happening in an above board way that you and i are both hoping that it does Look, i mean i think the truth is the new york times as a reporting agency is completely compromised um and it may well be that there are other publications which have the same left side doing Jazeera and so forth you can't trust at all and so you don't trust them the new york times essentially it, everything that comes out from Hamas, they take at face value. Uh, the announcement that there was an Israeli rocket that killed 500 people in or near a hospital was completely false at the time. And the Times reported, and then later they said, oh, we've done a real detailed study, and we don't think it was a Palestinian rocket that misfired that did this, but we don't know what it was. And even that was completely phony. Uh, so you just have to cut them off. And what they have to do is they have to announce publicly that they've changed their entire system of the way in which they collect information. They do not rely on any of their past contexts to deal with this situation, and that they try to make sure that the people who go in are either neutral in a genuine sense, hard to be, or have some pro-Israeli people along there with the pro-Palestinians to do it. Uh, this has been a national disgrace, as far as I can see. Uh, the best newspaper coverage you get from this is I think on, on average, it's a combination of the Wall Street Journal editorial page, but not its front page. I think the New York Sun, which is obviously a Jewish operation, has done a very good job on covering this thing. Uh, but you just have to keep on pushing that thing. And you have to have instant correction from the other side. My view is that the Washington Post, with many of its shenanigans, is already in serious circulation trouble. And it deserves it. And I think that's going to happen the same way to the New York Times if this stuff is exposed. 
But remember, in the fog of war, uh, distortions are part of the game. And so the, what you're saying is if we knew the truth about the situation on the ground, we'd have a lot of very difficult questions to ask. And when we don't know that, the questions are even more difficult. And so I think that one hopes that this war will end as quickly as possible. But again, I think the Israelis are correct. Hamas must go. And that means that that whole tunnel situation has to be shut down. And I believe that it will be. It may take a month or two, but I think it's going to be done. Last little bit one, Richard. Um, Netanyahu was reported as saying he believes Israel probably will have to have overall security over Gaza for an indefinite period. What what do you think about that as a, a, a solution going forward? I think it's A, true, and B, unhappy. I mean, the trick in all of this stuff is to figure out how it is you get local commerce to work, increase exchanges with respect to the Israeli on the business front. If you remember before this thing happened, there was an arrangement whereby about 25,000 people from Gaza went to work in Israeli for Isra in Israel for Israeli wages. Right. And that turned out to be a, a subterfuge uh, that Hamas put in the place to divert it. But that's what you have to encourage. There's a long history of tying that and there's also a long history of extremists on the Arab side uh, trying to kill all the people involved in these things so as to make trade impossible. But the only strategy that worked is relentless suppression of aggression and very strong subsidies, even cash subsidies, uh, to encourage commerce between the two sides. The commercial people have something to lose when there's a war. The firebrands do not. You've been listening to the Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. As always, you can learn more if you head over to Richard's column, The Libertarian, which we publish on Defining Ideas at Hoover.org. If you found this conversation thought-provoking, please share it with your friends and rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. We'll talk to you next time. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we generate and promote ideas advancing freedom. For more information about our work, to hear more of our podcasts, or view our video content, please visit hoover.org.